As we prepare to open the word, let's pray together. Our Father, we are blessed, we are so thankful to have your word in front of us, to be in a place, Lord, in Montreal here where we can come and gather and open your word freely. We recognize that for so many of our brothers and sisters across this globe, that is certainly not the case. And so, Lord, we thank you this morning, and we ask that wherever brothers and sisters are worshiping across the world, that you would be powerful amongst them, uh, continue to be faithful to them, Lord, provide where provision is needed, give hope where hope is needed, peace where peace is needed. Lord, thank you for the book of Daniel in particular that we have been journeying through, and we ask now that you would be our help and our guide, and that your power, Lord, would go forth by your Spirit, working with your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in our backyard at home, this is not an actual picture of it, but we have a maple tree, and a large branch on that tree in our backyard has begun to rot. The squirrels, being opportunists, have now burrowed um, a nest into that rotted section of the branch. So every once in a while I come into the backyard and I find a little pile of wood chips right beneath that, uh, that hollowed out branch. And of course that means that this branch, this hollowed out branch, is becoming more and more unstable. And it's now inevitable that I'll have to chainsaw the entire branch off for safety reasons. Sorry squirrels. So we might say that the writing is on the wall for that branch. Now have you noticed, friends, as we have come through four chapters of Daniel, that the writing has been on the wall for Babylon? In each of the four chapters, we have been given strong clues that Babylon is coming to an end. So in chapter one, we had that little notice at the very tail end of the chapter that Daniel was in Babylon until its end, until the first year of King Cyrus of Persia. So already in chapter one, we were told that Babylon would indeed come to its end. Then in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar's dream told him and told us, as we've been reading, that the golden kingdom of Babylon, remember the kingdom with the gold head, would give way to a silver kingdom that was not Babylon. In chapter 3, God simply overruled Nebuchadnezzar at the fiery furnace, showing Nebuchadnezzar who the real king was. And then in chapter 4 that we looked at last week, Nebuchadnezzar ended up destitute, didn't he? Eating grass with long fingernails. So if we've been reading these first four chapters carefully, we realize that there is rot in the branch. That this kingdom can't last. That for Babylon, the writing has really been on the wall since the very first chapter of the book. And in chapter 5, that we will look at this morning, the end comes for Babylon. The branch is sawn off. And so we begin this morning our journey at Daniel 5, verse 1. 
with the words, King Belshazzar. Who is King Belshazzar? We haven't met him yet. And we ask, what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, the story goes like this, very quickly. Nebuchadnezzar died in the year 562 BC. And his successor on the Babylonian throne was his son, Amel Marduk, or as he's sometimes called, Evil Merodach. There won't be a test on this later, so don't worry. But Amel Marduk only lasted for about a year because he was assassinated by his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law was a guy named Nereglisser. Nereglisser, and I wouldn't recommend that name for any prospective parents, Nereglisser then took the throne for about four years, but he died under mysterious circumstances. His son, Labashi Marduk, there's another great name, he ascended the throne, but he was murdered in the very first month of his reign, and the murderers decided to install another guy on the throne named Nabonidus. The priests in Babylon had a problem with Nabonidus. Nabonidus was utterly devoted to the Babylonian moon god, but the priests preferred another god named Marduk, that Marduk be left secure in his position as the official Babylonian god. And so Nabonidus was relocated, conveniently, relocated 500 miles away in what is now Saudi Arabia, while in his place back in Babylon, his son Belshazzar ruled as a sort of deputy ruler. So Belshazzar is sort of like the Christian Freeland of Babylon, the deputy prime minister, the deputy ruler in the absence of his father, Nabonidus. Belshazzar shows up suddenly here as Daniel 5 begins, which means, as Daniel 5 begins, that 23 years have passed since the death of Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, we can date the events of chapter 5 very precisely, thanks to records that exist outside the Bible. So the date here is the 12th of October, 539 B.C., and Belshazzar is cooking. King Belshazzar made a great feast. Whether he cooked it or his servants did, it's immaterial. He made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So Daniel 5, notice, it begins with a party atmosphere. As Dale Davis says, suddenly, as chapter 5 begins, you and I are plunked down among Belshazzar's banquet tables. The wine is flowing. The DJ is DJing. Don't worry, I won't quit and become a beatboxer. Belshazzar is leading the way here, according to the text, in terms of alcohol consumption in front of his thousand guests. And we know, friends, we know, based on the events that happen in this chapter, that as this party is in full swing in Babylon, 
the infantry and the artillery of the Medes and Persians is camped out just outside the walls of this city. The Medes and Persians had already defeated the Babylonians at a place called Opus, not the transit card, but the city. And then just two days before the party, the Medes and the Persians again had also overtaken another town called Sippar. And here they are now right at the gate of the royal city and Belshazzar parties. Why? Belshazzar is convinced, listen, that his city is invincible. That his city is impregnable. There is no way that the city can be breached with its advanced security walls and its watchtowers. Plus, this city had been designed so that the Euphrates River flowed through it, giving a water supply to people, animals, crops that grew inside the city walls. So it wasn't like their opponents could just simply starve them out. Belshazzar knew that the enemy was right now outside the city. But good luck getting in. So hey, let's crack open more bottles of wine here. And let's get out on the dance floor. Verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that his father, or Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor a few kings back, that his father, predecessor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now as Daniel 1 had opened, we were told there that Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah, right? And when he did that, he took vessels from the Jerusalem temple and he brought those vessels back to Babylon and they were placed in a Babylonian shrine. Belshazzar knows exactly where those vessels are located and where they came from. They came from Jerusalem. He sends his men to go fetch them so that they can be used in his party. Belshazzar thinks, well, the God of Israel, whose temple the vessels had been taken from, he is a defeated God. Our gods had defeated him. He might as, we might as well just get the cups and use them because we have all this wine here. I think Dale Davis puts it best when he says this, quote, Belshazzar's demeaning of Yahweh's vessels was his way of demeaning Yahweh. Belshazzar was not simply a drunken slob, but a profane slob. But things get even worse here. Verses 3 and 4. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. Now listen. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. 
So not only was this crowd drinking to stupid excesses, not only were they sacrilegiously using God's temple vessels to do it, now they're making toasts to idols with God's cups. As Chris Wright says, now they were using goblets that had been in service to the living God to make toasts to dead gods. Well, let's see if those dead gods can help Belshazzar and his crowd when they most need it. Verse 5. Immediately, that is, just as Belshazzar and company were raising God's holy vessels to their lifeless gods with smiles on their drunken faces, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. At the back of the hall, the maitre d' scrambles frantically through the pages of those who are invited, but he can't find any invitation for a disembodied human hand. The hand has just suddenly shown up uninvited and totally unexpected, and it is a terrifying sight. And in a split second, Belshazzar goes from smiling with his cup raised to lifeless gods to sheer terror. Belshazzar becomes unglued. Verse 6, notice. Then the king's color changed. What happened? The blood drained from his face. And his thoughts alarmed him. Or in the NIV, he was so frightened, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Now, as for the knocking knees, this is due, of course, to Belshazzar shaking and convulsing in sheer shock at the sight of a disembodied hand. But that little phrase there, his limbs gave way, is very interesting. Now follow me here. In the original Aramaic text, it literally reads like this. The knots of his loins were untied. His knots came undone. And there is a scholar named Al Walters who has argued very persuasively that what, what is being described here is Belshazzar experiencing a sudden case of incontinence. As he sees the hand, he loses control, would be a nice way to put it. The fingers of a human hand appear. Now, if we've read our Old Testament, we will remember a couple of other instances when the power of God was associated with his finger. 
So in Exodus 8 chapter, or Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, when God had sent the third plague, the plague of gnats on Egypt, the Egyptian magicians in that instance could not duplicate the plague. They admitted that this plague of gnats had come, in their own words, by the finger of God. The finger of God was just too powerful for them to mimic. And then later on in Exodus, in Exodus 31, 18, we're told there that the tablets upon which were written the Ten Commandments had been written by the mighty and all-wise finger of God. And here on Belshazzar's banquet wall, God's fingers appear out of nowhere and such is the power and the spectacle of this moment that Belshazzar's knots untie. Well, when people get this stressed, this panicked, like Belshazzar, it's a natural response to scream, to yell. And that's exactly what Belshazzar does. Verse 7. The king called loudly, or he yelled, one version has, he screamed, to bring in that same set of losers that we've already seen countless times in Daniel, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with royal colors, with purple, and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom, third after myself and my absent father who's 500 miles away. And so in come the stooges. Then all the king's wise men came in, but guess what? <laughs> they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Now, it wasn't that the lighting was bad. Verse 5 has already told us that there was a lampstand illuminating the writing. But what these stooges needed was not a lamp, a physical lamp, but they needed light in their mind. They needed God's illumination of the meaning of the script on the wall, and none was forthcoming. Now we ask the question, what did these guys see as they looked at the wall? We think that what they saw was probably something like this on the screen. Aramaic letters, which are all consonants, no vowels, but arranged with no breaks between the words, no vowels. So in English, just to give you an idea, the written message would be something like this. Hard to decipher, right? Where does one word start and another begin, and which vowels should we supply? 
Well, the Babylonian councils are, counselors are bewildered, as usual. <laughs> they can't help their deputy king. Verse 9, Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, as if he wasn't already, and his color changed again. <laughs> so we have to wonder here if he went from sort of a pale shade now to a, a sickly green color of some kind. And his lords were perplexed. Of course they were. Now please notice, friends, notice this very carefully, that at this juncture of the story, all of Belshazzar's helps, all of Belshazzar's crutches have been taken away. So first of all, the gods that he toasted at the party were not able to prevent the hand from appearing. And now the greatest minds in his kingdom can't help him with the writing itself. Belshazzar is in something of a corner here. And sometimes God will force us into a corner also. Removing all our props that we had relied on to support us. But as Dale Davis says, Whenever God brings a man to the end of himself, smashing all his props and wasting his idols, it is a favorable moment indeed, if he will but see it. Because all you've got then is God. Well, just then, as the counselors are there admitting defeat, Another uninvited guest makes an entrance. The queen mother comes in. And probably we think this is Nabonidus' wife. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lord, she heard the commotion, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, Oh, king, live forever. I won't try to do the <laughs> Oh, king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change, like, yeah, you've already gone from pale to green. Let's not go now to blue. There is a, this, this guy, right? This, this man <laughs> in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, that is in the days of Nebuchadnezzar who preceded you a few kings ago, Light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Now at this stage of the game, friends, Daniel was already in his 80s. And because the queen mother has to remind Belshazzar about who Daniel is here, it seems that by this point, Daniel had been relegated to some lesser role 
in the government, a less prominent role than he had enjoyed under Nebuchadnezzar. But I want you to notice one particular thing, because it's important, that the queen mother says here to Belshazzar. She says that Daniel is able to what? Solve problems. Now, literally in Aramaic, it says that Daniel is able to untie knots. <laughs> okay, so the king's knots had already been loosened when he saw the hand. And now the queen suggests to him that, hey, Daniel can come in and untie your knots, king. So definitely there's some wordplay happening here in the original text that's meant for levity and meant for humor. Verse 13, Belshazzar does as the queen suggests. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And now listen to Belshazzar in obviously condescending tone. He says to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah whom the king my father brought from Judah. So Belshazzar has to let Daniel know that he's only a mere exile, right? And this exile is now privileged to stand before such a mighty, drunken, and incontinent king. And then Belshazzar continues, I have heard of you. Now, it may or may not be true of you, Daniel. You're going to have to prove it. I've heard this. That the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing. And he's probably not talking this calmly at this point. <laughs> read this writing, make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and what? Solve problems. And you guessed it for a third time. We have our phrase in the original, untie knots. So Belshazzar's abdominal knots have been untied. And then the queen suggests that Daniel be brought in to untie Belshazzar's knots. And now Belshazzar says to Daniel, hey, hey, I, I heard you can untie my knots, solve my problems. So definitely some humor that they've worked into the text here. And then he makes the same promise to Daniel that he had made to his stooges. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, Daniel has already come into this banquet hall. He's already looked at the message that God wrote on the wall. And Daniel knows what the message means. In essence, the message is that Belshazzar and Babylon are done. So to be offered a Babylonian robe of purple and a gold chain and a position in the kingdom, these are hollow prizes. They're not going to mean anything very soon. And so Daniel says to Belshazzar, keep your prizes. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, 
I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now we have to remember this at this point, friends. We're still in the banquet hall where wine has been flowing and many in the crowd have had too much. And probably the last thing, the very last thing that these people would want to sit through now is a history lesson. But that's exactly what Daniel gives them in the next four verses. Belshazzar wants to know what the writing on the wall means, but Daniel starts instead with this history lesson. He says to Belshazzar, O king, here comes the history lesson, the Most High gave Nebuchadnezzar, he's going back a few kings, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of of the greatness that he gave him, All peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, what happened? He was brought down from his kingly throne, and the glory was what? Taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind on this earth and sets over it whom he will. So the basics of this history lesson are that God gave Nebuchadnezzar a great kingdom, and then when Nebuchadnezzar became proud, God brought him very low until Nebuchadnezzar finally learned who the real king is. And now in the next two verses of his speech, the history lesson having been completed, Daniel aims his prophetic sights directly on Belshazzar. And he makes things very personal. Listen to the text with me. He says to Belshazzar, And you... His son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Now watch this, my friends. Though you knew all this, Belshazzar had known all about the story of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, how God had altered Nebuchadnezzar's mind and had driven him off the throne to the ground to eat grass like an ox. Belshazzar knew all this. He had the facts. He was fully aware of how God had once operated on proud Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar knew all this. 
And yet here is Belshazzar getting hammered and mocking God with the goblets and making toasts to idols with those goblets and thinking in his great naivete and his pride that his city was untouchable, that his city was impregnable. As far as Belshazzar was concerned, the party could go on mocking Israel's God. There was no way the enemy was getting into this city. I want you to see here, friends, the insolence and the pride and the foolishness of Belshazzar. He knew all this. And yet he decided to go on poking at God. He knew the truth of how God humbles even the most powerful of kings. And yet Belshazzar decided brazenly to keep sinning against the light. And this is exhibit A, my friends, of a person, listen, of a person sinning with eyes fully open. Having the truth before him or her, but yet defying it by his life, her life. Well, what about you? What about me? In his commentary on Daniel, Chris Wright gives examples of how we, each and every one of us, can look a lot like Belshazzar in the church. Though you knew all this, we have the 66 books of the Bible that Belshazzar did not have, We have more than Belshazzar ever had. We have God's entire revealed book of truth, which warns us, for example, very clearly against adultery. And yet some in the church go ahead lusting and sleeping around, though they knew all this. They know that adultery is sin against God and it ruins marriages and it shatters lives. And yet, like Belshazzar, they go ahead anyway. Others of us have heard sermons preached and have received many lessons on the proper use of the tongue. It's quiet in here. We know all this. And yet in Belshazzarian fashion, we still go ahead and we get on that phone and we spread gossip and we betray confidences and we speak critically about someone who's not on the other end of that phone. Though you knew all this, you still went ahead with your insolence and your rebellion against God. Though you knew all this, and though you're a person who's come faithfully to church for years, you still went ahead and lived like an atheist on Monday as if God does not exist. This phrase, 
though you knew all this, should terrify us, my friends. We must take it as a warning from God. And so what is the area of your life where God's, though you knew all this, is landing most forcefully? Sometimes God gets under our skin by his word, like sandpaper. Where is God dealing with you? And my counsel to you is repent and turn to Jesus. God, through his prophet Daniel, is not done with Belshazzar, verse 23. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And then listen, but the God in whose hand is your, what? Breath. And whose are all your ways you have not honored. Belshazzar has been using his God-given breath to defy God and to praise dead idols. Belshazzar has been using his God-given breath to dishonor the God who gave him that breath. Daniel goes on in verses 24 through 28, finally now, with the interpretation of the writing. Then from his presence, from God's presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Now these strange words are all nouns that refer to weights of measure. Roughly translated, the message is mina, mina, shekel, and two halves. But now, notice in the interpretation that the Holy Spirit gives to Daniel, these nouns describing weights of measure are interpreted as verbs. Mene, mene means numbered, numbered. Tekel means weighed. And parson means divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Verses 26 through 28. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, which is the singular form of verse 25's parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So we could put it like this, that God's word to drunken, sacrilegious, willfully rebellious Belshazzar is that Belshazzar is finished 
He is a lightweight. And now the Babylonian kingdom over which he ruled has come to an end. And Belshazzar, I think probably at this point, completely bewildered, disoriented. He doesn't utter any sort of word of reply to Daniel. But according to verse 29, he gave the command and the completely hollow prizes ended up being granted to Daniel, <laughs> even though Daniel had refused them earlier. Daniel was clothed with purple, big deal. Chain of gold was put around his neck, yeah, yeah. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom that's ending this very night. And then it happens, friends. Belshazzar goes to meet the God that he's just profaned. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And so the party is officially over. God is not mocked. Amen? So what happened was that the Medes and Persians had come up with a genius military plan to gain entrance into the city. So while they're outside the city, they diverted the river that flowed under the walls of the city and into the city. They div diverted the river into a swamp. And once the river lowered to about thigh depth, they stealthily sent their strike forces along the riverbed underneath those great security walls and into the city where they overcame the city and they reached the king and they killed him. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 31, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Who's Darius the Mede? Well, he's either the top general under Cyrus, king of Persia, or... Another argument is that Darius the Mede is a second name for Cyrus himself. God orchestrated, we need to see, he orchestrated the handover from Belshazzar of Babylon to Cyrus of Persia. Cyrus is the one, friends, remember, who God set up to do what? To issue the decree that allowed the Jewish people to return to their homeland after the exile was over. Now, every good parent will warn their small children about dangers. Do you agree? Don't touch the top of the stove or you might get burned. Don't chase your soccer ball out into the street or you might get run over by a car. Parents warn their kids. Why? Because they love their kids. And God is the greatest parent by far. He loves us so much that he's given us many clear warnings. And the warning that he gives us to each and every one of us in this fifth chapter of Daniel is the same warning that he gave to Belshazzar. Mene, mene. Each of our days are numbered. Tekel. Each of us, because of our sin, has been weighed by God and found wanting. And Paris, one day, whatever kingdom we've built up here on earth, 
house, quads, vacation house, investments. It'll be left behind when we die. And then the judgment. Now, there's no hope whatsoever, and you need to understand this, there's no hope of withstanding the holy judgment of God on our own. You won't be able to parade, look what I did, right? It doesn't work that way. But God, in his great love for us, doesn't leave us on our own. He gives us his son, Jesus Christ. And when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see God's warning writ large. This bleeding and dying is the grave consequence of your sin and my sin. Turn away from your sin this very day and receive and embrace the one dying here on this cross, your substitute, who in his breathtaking love for you has taken the curse and has taken the judgment that your sin deserved. Your days are numbered. You have been weighed and found wanting. You will die and then the judgment. So receive the crucified and resurrected Jesus now, today, and live eternally. My friends, Jesus Christ is the only one ever to walk this earth who, as Kim Monroe has said, it's Jesus who has something different written on his wall. On his wall, the writing says, weighed and found worthy of unnumbered days and an eternal kingdom. And my friends, that inscription on his wall can be the inscription on our wall when we receive him as Savior and Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you are good, loving, wise, faithful, merciful, gracious parent to us. And so you give us warnings. You give us the warning in Daniel 5. You give us the warning of the cross, but also the love of the cross. Lord, I pray for each and every person in the sound of my voice that they would heed your warning and turn from sins, though they knew all this. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.